namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sankhang namasami so once again, good afternoon to everybody. Um, so, uh, apologies that this is a little bit after three o'clock here in the UK. Uh, a few technolo technological glitches, but hopefully everything will work well for this afternoon. So welcome to everyone here uh, at uh, Amravati today and also around the country, around the world, who's uh, tuning in for this uh, second of the Sunday afternoon Dhamma Talks uh, webcasts from Amravati. The theme for this week is knowing in the knowing. And uh, those of us who've been students of Lumpur Sumato for a long time, and uh, as well as Buddhist practitioners, will be very familiar with this particular theme. And uh, as, uh, specifically, if you've been listening to Lumpur Sumato's Dhamma Talks, his webcasts over the last few weeks, you'll know that um, his uh, talks about uh, awareness and consciousness and so forth uh, is a very, very large part, if not the, the, the great majority of his, uh, his teachings. Uh, say center around those particular themes. So I thought it would be helpful to uh, talk a, a bit more about that area and to um, uh, expand it somewhat. The, looking at the title, and uh, by the way, I, I don't choose the uh, I choose the titles, but I don't come up with the um, the suggestions. That's a, a variety of people in the monastery uh, offer uh, lists and lists, uh, pages and pages of different possible titles, and I fish through them, and then uh, uh, about twelve or thirteen, according to how many weekends we have in the rains retreat, pop up, and I make a selection from that. Uh, this particular theme I thought would be uh, helpful because it relates very very closely to this central theme of Lumpur Sumedho's teachings, uh, particularly these days, but also over the uh, last uh, decades, since the early 90s, this uh, theme of, of awareness or knowing consciousness has been right at the very center of Lumpur Sumedho's teachings. So I thought this would be a useful area to explore. And uh, just as uh, Lumpur Sumedho is very fond of quoting T.S. Eliot uh, in various circumstances, uh, the, uh, a couple of lines from the, the, the poem The Rock, or uh, verses from The Rock that uh, T.S. Eliot wrote immediately came to mind when looking at this theme. Uh, and uh, it goes, where is the wisdom that we have lost in knowledge? Where is the knowledge that we have lost in information? And reading that to, uh, today, I was checking it up in my collected works of T.S. Eliot, just to make sure I got the words right. <laughs> you could probably add on, you know, where is the information that is lost in data, to add to a sort of uh, an extra modern day um, element to that. Because uh, the, uh, the, uh, the quality of knowing or knowledge um, in, our, in our modern day thinking, particularly the Western materialistic mindset, uh, when we talk about knowing, it's almost always uh, used to mean knowing about, having, having the, the data or having the information. You've got some facts or you can, you've looked it up on Wikipedia, uh, you've, you've read a paper about it, you've read an article about it. And, and so that this is what we consider to be knowing that you, you've uh, you've got some information, you've heard something, you've uh, you've uh, 
say, gathered a particular set of facts, and then we think that we know, we, we have a, a reasonable or reliable perspective on things. But that's a very rudimentary, I would say, or very um, uh, unhelpful attitude towards knowledge and knowing, and what, what is the most, say, uh, liberating or the, the, the most, um, say, uh, meaningful and, and powerful quality of, of knowing itself, what we would call the knowing within the knowing. So that, uh, uh, that superficial knowing you can think of as knowing about. And um, it's within that, the knowing in the knowing, is that quality of uh, awareness that uh, is, say, superior to and really informs the uh, any kind of knowledge or facts or information that, uh, that we have uh, that really brings that to life and makes it meaningful, makes it useful, and helps it to be uh, genuinely liberating. So if any of you were mystified by the title, Knowing in the Knowing, what does that mean? <laughs> Hopefully, uh, over the next uh, 50 minutes or so, I'll be able to expand uh, a little more on that. And it's uh, uh, the sort of attendant qualities and themes that come from that. Uh, in, in Western psychology, maybe before going on to the Buddhist side of it, it's interesting that in, in recent years, um, Dan, Daniel Goleman published a book called Emotional Intelligence, uh, which was quite a revolutionary publication. And uh, it highlighted the fact that you could have a very high IQ or you could have a lot of, of, of say, formal intelligence, but be socially really um, uh, inept or that you could be suffering a lot or your life could be really difficult, complicated, or you could have a lot of intelligence and still that didn't help you very much either in your work or your your uh, relationships or uh, functioning in the, in the world or in, in any practical way and that uh, he, he used that terminology he created that term emotional intelligence to say um, bring to light that it's not just a matter of having a high IQ it's not just a matter of having a lot of information that is the, the thing that is most valuable in our in our human life in our human potential but emotional intelligence is uh, another way of speaking about this sort of knowing within the knowing or that quality of of uh, awareness and mindfulness that quality of full attunement to reality that needs to be there for us to make full use of the information that we have or the intelligence that we have yeah, i've uh, i've known that very uh, very directly in people I've been around an extraordinary uh, say, degree of, uh, of uh, knowledge and mental agility, but being really miserable, anxious people, uh, the, uh, the kind of degree of, of suffering that the, an intelligent person can experience is, is quite uh, extraordinary. And even uh, it's uh, painfully common that uh, young undergraduates, people going off to high-ranking universities like Oxford or Cambridge, uh, that the, the uh, sort of cream of the intelligentsia having to pass the exams to get into those places and then within a, a few weeks or a few months of, of, of arriving there then they're, they're harming themselves or attempting suicide or committing suicide or or having breakdowns because their intelligence is not enough the uh, uh, the uh, say the that worldly uh, faculty is not enough to really make a genuine difference and, and able to make us function in a, a skillful and uh, effective way in the, in the human family and to live uh, in a way where we can really find fulfillment and uh, not just in the work that we do but within our hearts within our own within our own being so within the, the buddhist framing of of this kind of area 
there's sort of different levels of, of speaking about it. In the, the Thai language, they uh, talk about the quality of puru. Pu comes from um, purisa, which means a, a person or a human being. Uh, ru comes from the word to know. So the puru is that quality of, of knowing or uh, awareness, that quality of, of uh, cognition uh, within us. But that, that simple term, puru, can, re can refer for, uh, to a, a wide spectrum of different qualities. It can mean just perceiving or cognizing what's going on in the present all the way through to the the, the nature of the enlightened mind of a Buddha, that the same term can uh, apply to a wide spectrum of, of qualities. And so uh, I thought uh, uh, it, it's helpful to know that uh, in the, the uh, Thai language and in, in Dhamma talks we hear from our teachers like Lumpur Cha and other forest Ajans, they might talk about the Puru uh, as the one who knows or that which is aware, but it, it it can mean a, a, a very simple mechanistic kind of a cognizing or knowing, but it also can mean a very uh, informed or, or complete uh, comprehensive uh, uh, knowledge of an enlightened mind and, and everything in between. So it's good to be aware that there's a range of meanings within that. So the most uh, uh, rudimentary kind of knowing is uh, really just a, a perception, what we call sanya, or perception, uh, perception combined with feeling or perception leading to, to thinking. It's just the mind that uh, that recognizes, oh, this is this is blue, this is a bl uh, blue carpet, or it's a, a red wall, or this is a, a brown robe, or this is a black microphone, this is a, a, a video camera. So that it's a, uh, a very basic uh, mech uh, mechanistic kind of perception. That's, uh, there's a knowing, there's a, uh, a, uh, say a, a picking up of information, um, but that in itself is, uh, say, part of the, the, uh, the animal realm. Any kind of uh, living creature, any, any being of the animal realm, uh, however small or basic, will have those kinds of qualities of perception and feeling. And the more advanced ones might have a bit of vitaka thinking. They might have a name, say, oh, blue or <laughs> black or red. Um, the, the kind of beings that, that don't even have uh, conceptual thought wouldn't have a, a word for it. They wouldn't have a concept for it they would know the difference between blue and black and red but they wouldn't uh, they wouldn't have a, a, a name when is guessing can't really put yourself into the mind of a beetle or a hummingbird but uh, or a, a nematode uh, you know, a microscopic worm but uh, that is what we understand is that they don't have conceptual thought or they don't have that kind of um, uh, that kind of um, uh, say ability to to name and conceive in the in the thinking realm that we do as as human beings or some of the higher animals uh, like elephants or horses and dolphins and such like seem to have those kind of abilities uh, uh, as well to to think and to, to name and to use forms to communicate of that, of that nature. So the most basic kind of mindfulness or, or cognition or knowing is, I would say, uh, sanya and sanya uh, perception, uh, sanya leading to vedana feeling or sanya leading to to uh, vitaka thinking. That on that kind of a level, it's a very basic mechanistic kind of knowing. There's uh, just cognizing what's present. So then the, the next level up is what we would call sati. Uh, so sati means mindfulness. 
And so uh, within the, the Buddhist con uh, uh, conception of things, the uh, Buddhist way of speaking, sati uh, is not just being uh, aware of what's going on, but it also within it, there's uh, an innate sense of wholesome and unwholesome. There's uh, intrinsically an element of sila, if you like, of, of virtue contained within that. So that if... Uh, uh, if a motivation or is uh, is seen as being wholesome, then it's no, oh, that's wholesome. If a motivation is seen as, as unwholesome, that's recognised too. If you see uh, as another being uh, acting in a in an unskillful or cruel way, that's recognised as something destructive or painful. If you see something kindly or benevolent, then it's recognised as something wholesome and benevolent. So that uh, that I would say that that quality of mindfulness, and I know there's there's many many definitions of what mindfulness is, particularly since it's a sort of global, uh, popular global phenomenon nowadays. Um, but uh, I would say within the traditional uh, uh, classical Buddhist uh, framing of the word sati, it's uh, uh, and what we would think of as being part of the Eightfold Path, samasati, right mindfulness, it always has that element of, uh, of say, of discernment, uh, of recogni recognizing the wholesome and the unwholesome within that. So that's uh, uh, that kind of knowing is bringing your attention to what is happening in the present moment uh, and, say, being, uh, uh, say, aware of the feelings, the, the, the moods and the, the texture that comes along with it. The next level up is what we call sati sampajanya, or mindfulness and uh, and full awareness, or mindfulness and clear comprehension. So uh, Lumpur Sumedha would render this um, uh, intuitive uh, awareness. Uh, he liked to, to he brought in the the word intuitive into this definition many many years ago because uh, he uh, he liked to 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 say emphasize that you can be fully aware of something that you don't really comprehend. <laughs> you don't really know what's going on, but you can be fully aware that you don't know what's going on. If that makes sense. So that uh, he, he he felt that using words like clear comprehension. Um, uh, which is a common translation of sati sampajanya, is uh, it gives a sense that you know exactly what's going on. You're you're fully uh, say, tuned in to what's happening and why it's happening and and what you should do about it. But uh, on the experiential level, and uh, as with Lumpur Sumedha uh, and with other forest uh, tradition teachers, the the basis of the teaching is from personal experience. And he realised, well, you can be fully aware of something. You, you don't comprehend at all. You can know this is really foggy or my mind is really unclear at the moment. And you can be fully aware that you uh, you know that you don't know. <laughs> you can be fully aware that this is a, a foggy state. And so that he liked to use intuitive awareness as a way of representing this quality. And I feel that that's a, 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 a very skillful and a helpful way of rendering it because it's, uh, it can be uh, misleading to think that, to say mindfulness and, and full awareness or, full, or clear comprehension brings with it a conceptual understanding. Because a lot of life, if not most of life, is pretty mysterious. We don't know what's going on or why it's going on or where it's come from, but we can be aware of that. I don't know what's happening here. I'm not quite sure what the way forward is, or, or just the physical darkness. It's nighttime. You can't see. You don't know where, where the path is because uh, there isn't enough light. You can't see, or it's foggy. You, you, know, you can't, you can't see very far. 
So the best way of defining this kind of knowing is uh, having mindfulness of a particular object, like say, knowing, okay, this is the Sunday afternoon talk. It's now 3.17 by this clock. Um, uh, and so uh, that uh, is something to go by. I've been, I've been going for about uh, uh, just under 15 minutes because we had a bit of a late start. Um, so uh, I've still got another uh, 45, uh, less than 45 minutes to go before I should be winding up at, at four o'clock. Um, okay, uh, how, how's my pacing going? You know, uh, what, what do I feel I want to cover before my time runs out? So essentially what that means is not just aware of the, say, the words that I'm choosing or the people I'm talking to and where they might be or what I've already said, but uh, also what's the time, the place, the situation, what's going to be useful to talk about, uh, what, uh, what is, say, the, the, the kind of um, context for the, uh, the experience of the, the present moment. So that it's not just being mindful of an object, but the context in which it appears, the surroundings, the, 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 the placing, the, the setting for that, uh, that object. So that it's an, an attunement, not just to a single act, but how that act might be impacting others, or um, what's the, uh, what are the other contingent factors, what else is playing into that in the present moment. So it's a, it's a broadening of attention and a more, uh, more comprehensive kind of, of awareness that is being described, sati sampajanya. Uh, so sampa means, means full or complete, uh, anya is, is knowing. There are many different words for knowing or awareness, like anya, jnana, vijja, and they, I would say, uh, not being a Pali scholar, but having been in this business for quite a long time, I would say that uh, those words overlap, the meaning of them overlaps quite a lot, and so that to a great extent, they are, say, uh, they can be substituted for each other. So that that uh, uh, sampajanya, that uh, comprehensive knowing or comprehensive awareness, it's being mindful of an, uh, of an object in the context of time, the place, the situation. The 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 highest level of mindfulness, or the, the most uh, comprehensive quality of knowing, this uh, the 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 knowing within the knowing, I would say, in its to its fullest and and purest. Uh, uh, extent is what you can call holistic mindfulness, or that uh, full awareness of of vijja, of uh, or of jnana, uh, that uh, awakened awareness of the heart that is free of any kind of obscuration, so that it's free of the delusions of of, of um, say attachment to like and dislike, of self and other. It's it's free of biases of greed, hatred, and delusion of, of every kind. So that uh, that kind of um, vijja or, or jnana in its purified state is the mind of the arahant, or the mind of, of an awakened being. The mind of a Buddha is a, a, a mind, a heart that is completely free of the obscurations of greed, hatred, and delusion, where that, uh, that vijja is fully established and unobstructed by anything whatsoever. So in terms of, of our practice and meditation, then uh, the work that is being done is, fr uh, say, freeing that uh, the, the heart from the obscurations so that vijja, that, uh, that jnana can operate here and can, uh, say, be say, uh, brought to bear on the, the field of, of perception moment by moment, day by day, uh, regardless of what is being perceived, whether it's pleasant or painful, beautiful or ugly, wanted or unwanted, understandable or not understandable, 
that the, there can be that quality of, of vicha or, or jnana. It's also interesting that, uh, to me anyway, that the, the word jnana is the root of the Greek word gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S, gnosis, and, uh, or gnostic uh, in English, so that which pertains to gnosis. And our English word knowledge uh, or knowing comes from gnosis, the, 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 uh, from those, those kind of original roots. Um, and uh, also that the, uh, the, uh, that, say, direct relationship of knowing is uh, connected right to that uh, the same meaning that we have from the the Pali or Sanskrit uh, originals that it's a it's not a, a a foreign concept at all, but rather it's a uh, um, something that we know about or something that is is part of our, our life, part of our, our field of, of understanding, directly related to it, uh, those uh, origins in uh, ancient India and and beyond before. Oh, one of the aspects of this that I like to reflect upon, um, say when that quality of vijja is purified, when it's when it's fully, uh, say, matured and uh, uh, embodied, then what is it like? Uh, what, how do we describe that? Or how can you talk about that? And there's a, a number of places in the in the suttas. Uh, and, and also the teachings of the forest ajans that that sort of allude to this, that bring attention to this, and I, I find this really powerful and beautiful to uh, helpful to reflect upon. Uh, in particular, there's a uh, when the Buddha is talking about his own nature, and there's a, a dialogue but, uh, of the Buddha uh, with Vachagota, who was a, 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 a one of his indefatigable inquirers. Vachagota was a wanderer from a different sect who had come along and asked the Buddha many, many questions. Uh, so, a lot of the most so rich and uh, illuminating teachings in the Pali Canon are these dialogues between the Buddha and Vachagota, because he always had what about this and what about that and how do you explain this and so uh, the, the the question actually last year one of the Sunday talks was the questions of Vachagota so in one of those dialogues where the Buddha has been giving Vachagota the description of um, Vachagota has asked what happens to an enlightened being after the body dies you know where do they go and do they do they reappear do they not reappear do they both reappear or not reappear do they neither reappear nor not reappear in in another realm and then the, the Buddha uh, has responded to that. You know, uh, where does an enlightened being go when, when the body dies? You know, what, what happens when an enlightened one passes away? And then to each of those, the, when uh, the, uh, the question is put by, the questions are put by Vajragata, the Buddha said, reappears in another realm, doesn't apply. Does not reappear in another realm, does not apply. Both uh, uh, doesn't apply and neither doesn't apply either. So Vajragata says, I'm perplexed because this is, it's got to be one of those. Something has to be happening because, you know, an enlightened being is a, a, a fully uh, mature, spiritually uh, fully mature being. And so that something's got to happen. They've reached the, the culmination of the human potential. Something good must be happening. <laughs> what is it? And so then the, the Buddha uses this wonderful analogy. He says, uh, say, Vacha, if we had a fire burning here made out of grass and sticks, and the fire went out, and I asked you, where did the fire go, Vacha? North, south, east, or west? What would you reply? And he said, I'd say that the question doesn't apply, Venerable Sir, because it didn't go north, south, east, or west. It just went out. And then the Buddha said, exactly, Vacha. The way you put the question presumes a reality that doesn't exist. 
And so that's the, the preamble to the, 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 the piece I want to pass on now. So then, so then the Buddha is, uh, uh, then goes into trying to describe to Vajragata in a way that he can understand um, the, the, uh, the quality of the in, uh, an enlightened being. So it's one of the few places in the Pali Canon where the Buddha literally speaks about his own nature. And what he says is um, that material form, uh, Vacha, whereby one who is trying to describe the, the Tathagata, the Buddha, the, the enlightened one, would describe him. That has been cut off of the root, made like a palm tree stump, deprived of the conditions for existence, and rendered incapable of arising in the future. The Tathagata is liberated from being reckoned in terms of material form, Vacha. He is profound, immeasurable, unfathomable like the great ocean. So too, with Vedana, with feeling, with perception, sanya, with sankara, mental formations, and vijnana, consciousness. That consciousness whereby one trying to describe the Tathagata would describe him, that has been cut off at the root, made like a palm tree stump, deprived of the conditions for existence, and rendered incapable of arising in the future. The Tathagata is liberated from being reckoned in terms of consciousness or uh, form, feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness. He is profound, immeasurable, unfathomable, like the great ocean. So uh, you might feel like, well, that doesn't give me very much. <laughs> but it doesn't give us a thing. But it, uh, there's, a, there's some dimensions to that which I feel are really helpful. One is that yeah, you, you, uh, you can't describe what this quality is in terms of our ordinary perceptual world. We think in terms of a person. We think of this person who has a body, who has a personality, who, has, who ex exists in this particular spot, in this particular time. That's who they are. This is Ajahn Amro. He's sitting in this chair. He's talking into a microphone, looking at the camera. Uh, we're here in the, in the sala. Sister Jayavira is sitting there on the mat just to my right. You know, Venerable Anejo is sitting there just to my left. These are people, they're sitting in these spots, and time is passing. It's now 3.28, according to this clock. Uh, so that uh, is the normal way that we conceive people and things. And, but he's saying that material form, feeling, perceptions, mental formations, consciousness, whereby one trying to describe the Tathagata would describe him, that's been cut off at the root. So that that knowing, uh, and in this respect, you can say that awakened awareness, uh, which is the uh, the Buddha? The Buddha is the embodiment of that awakened awareness. Cannot really be described in terms of form, feeling, perception, mental formations, or consciousness in this respect. But then, in the second part, if you remember, it says he is profound, immeasurable, unfathomable, like the great ocean. So there's some quality there. But you can't say it's a thing, or a person, or it's in a place, or it <laughs> has a beginning, or an end, or a, a sound, or a flavor, or a color, or a shape, or anything. Because we, we borrow from the sense world all of the qualities and characteristics uh, and uh, the, the, uh, to, to create the idea of a being, or a person, or, or, uh, or something. And what the Buddha is saying is that any way of describing what that quality is uh, has, to be, has to be incorrect, it has to be incomplete. As he said, yeah, you're uh, about uh, the with the analogy of fire. You're asking the question in a way that presumes a reality that doesn't exist. So, where does their being go? It presumes this place and that place. <laughs> it presumes a being as an independent uh, spot of exist of uh, existingness. <laughs> uh, 
uh, a blob of beingness. It presumes time, it presumes identity, it presumes location. So what the Buddha is saying in that, that dialogue with Vachagota is that you have to let go of conceiving in terms of time, identity, and location. And our normal sense world is completely built around those. So if you let go of that, what have you got? There's no thing to hang on to. But then he says, he is profound, immeasurable, unfathomable, like the great ocean. So just as you stand at the shore of the sea and you look out over, over the sea, even if it's not the great ocean, it's just the English Channel, <laughs> something in the heart goes, wow. That openness, that spaciousness, you can see the, the surface of the ocean but, and the sea, or, but underneath it you can't tell what, what's there. It reaches a horizon and then uh, what's beyond that you can't tell. There's a vastness and immeasurability and immeasurable quality. And so that's what the Buddha uses as a, as a way of describing the, the suchness, if you like, the tatata, the suchness of the tathagata, the such-like one, the one who is such, the one who is thus. There's also an interesting dialogue that I like to quote with Lumpur Cha when, uh, in this little uh, book of his teachings, his sayings called No Ajahn Cha, and uh, it says how one day somebody came to Wobbapong and said, uh, uh, Lumpur, do you live here all the time? And how old are you? And he said, uh, I don't live anywhere. There's no place you can find me, and I don't have an age. Uh, and uh, so to, to have an age or to be some places, to be somebody, if you're some, as soon as you're somebody, then there's trouble. So don't be anybody, don't be anything, and then there's no trouble. That's the end of it. That's all there is to say about it. So that is a very profound exchange. Again, like the dialogue with Vachagota is a whoomph that goes with that. So uh, if we consider the, 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 uh, the nature of Ajahn Chah to, uh, as an enlightened being, as an arahant, you know, an arahant cannot tell lies. You know, it's one of the things that arahant cannot do. They cannot tell an untruth. And so for Lumpur Chah to say, I don't have an age, <laughs> or I don't live anywhere, yeah, yeah, there's there's no place you can find me, I think were his exact words. Even though he's sitting there face to face, there's no place you can find me. At that moment, it's the voice of the that uh, awareness, that, that uh, unconditioned uh, dimension of being that is speaking. Just as the Buddha is the embodiment of that uh, unconditioned reality, is that, and uh, the the word Buddha itself means the, the one who knows, the one who is awake, that which is awake, that which is aware. And so that uh, in reflecting on this, this quality of knowing, uh, knowing in the knowing, that uh, <clears throat> trying to turn it into a thing or a, a, a quality that can be described, I feel it's really useful to take these particular teachings and to reflect upon this undescribability or the, uh, the unapprehendability of the, in the enlightened, uh, if, if this is... Uh, uh, if that makes sense, because uh, we we try to turn um, we we put things into into words and ideas and shapes that fit our current understanding. But what this is pointing to is we have to let go of our our habitual perception, our habitual way of framing things. Another of the teachings that I like to to emphasize in this area again is kind of somewhat startling, and it's one of the reasons why we use the word Buddha to describe uh, the, the Buddha, uh, our great teacher.
is a, 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 an encounter that took place um, uh, with a, a Brahmin called Adona. So the, the Buddha has, has been walk, walking through the countryside and is sitting in a forest under a tree. And the, the sutta describes how this Brahmin is walking along the road and sees these footprints in the dust and, uh, of the road and is amazed by the, the, the lines on the, on the footprints. Really extraordinary uh, patterns that are, are there. They're very, these large, clear um, uh, footprints in the dust and he begins to wonder, who are these footprints made by? What kind of a being left these these footprints with these cir the circular wheels and these different uh, symbols that are there made by the lines on on this, this being's feet? What, what kind of a, an entity, what kind of a being kind of made these? So he follows the footprints into the forest and then finds the Buddha sitting under a tree. And he's amazed at this sort of radiant, peaceful presence and kneels down in front of the Buddha and Buddha opens his eyes and and uh, Dona is kind of startled at this sort of extraordinary, powerful, serene being and says, "Excuse me, uh, are you are you a deva?" And then the Buddha said, "No, I'm not a deva." He said, "Are you a Brahma god?" He said, "No, I'm not a Brahma god." "Are you are you a yaka? Are you a celestial demon?" He said, "No, I'm not a yaka." Then he says, "Are you a human being? Are you a manusa?" And the Buddha says, "No." Uh, well, please excuse me, but uh, you know, it, what are you? And then uh, the, uh, in this dialogue, uh, the, the Buddha says, you know, that whereby I would be a Deva or a Brahma or a Yaka or a, a Manusa, that has been, again, cut off of the root, made like a palm tree stump, deprived of the conditions for existence and rendered incapable of arising in the, in the future. You know, that which you could define this by uh, in, in those terms, that's been let go of. And so he said, know me as one who is awake, buddho sumi, buddho is awake. Uh, and that, uh, the, uh, and that, uh, that's what the, the word means, means uh, wakefulness or awakenedness, uh, awake. So uh, that's what he says to, to, to Dona. So that's kind of amazing to me. Again, an arahant cannot tell a lie. So when asked the question, you know, are you a human being? <laughs> the Buddha says, no. But he, he was born of human parents. He has a human, there's a human body. But when asked the question, you know, are you a manusa? Is that what you are? Then coming from the place of truthfulness and that transcendent, uh, uh, that transcendent knowing, then what comes out is like, no, that which you, that that which is speaking isn't really can't really be identified with personhood. It's beyond that. It transcends that. It's not. That's not what it it, it is or what I am. And uh, maybe a last dialogue to, to talk about is between the, the Buddha and a, a monk called Anuradha. And uh, Anuradha, again, has been, he's met up with some wanderers from a different group, and they've asked him, um, what happens to an enlightened being after they die? And then uh, the, do they reappear in, in another realm? Do they go to, to heaven or, or do they not reappear? Do they both reappear and not reappear? Do they neither reappear nor not reappear? The same questions that were put by Vachagota. And then uh, uh, Anuradha says the Buddha describes the, uh, what happens uh, as being different from those four possibilities. And then they say, well, you must be someone who's either a youngster or newly gone forth or someone who's completely ignorant because if, you, uh, if you'd done the, your training properly, you'd be, give, you'd be able to give us a, a decent answer. So they're dissatisfied with him, they're critical, and they, they go off. So then Anuradha goes to the Buddha and, and, uh, and asks about uh, the dialogue and whether he got it right. And the Buddha says, uh, essentially the Buddha says, 
uh, close but no cigar <laughs> yeah, in the in the parley for that so yes it was uh, it was close but not quite not quite correct because um he's still saying there is some the way he spoke it seems to have implied that there is some other kind of a super heaven or some sort of place that a being goes to uh, it's not exactly clear to, to me um, what was the, the, the detail of what was implied in the way that Anuradha spoke, but uh, it's clear that the Buddha says, "Yeah, it was close, but not quite accurate." And then he walks him through this this uh, similar kind of dialogue. He said, "So, uh, you know, Anuradha, can you say that with 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 the Tathagata sitting here in front of you, can you uh, can you say that the um, the Tathagata yeah, is?" Uh, is the five khandas? Is he identified with with the, with the five khandas? Is he identified with with material form, with feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness? And then Anuradha says, "No, you can't say that." Well, is he in the five khandas? And he says, "No, you can't say that." Well, is he is the Tathagata apart from the five khandas? No, you can't really say that. Is he uh, is he all the five khandas uh, together? We well, you know you can't really say that. And he goes through these different possibilities, uh, and uh, uh, and so then. Uh, the, the Buddha says, so if you can't define the Tathagata uh, in, in relationship to the, the five khandas as, uh, as having them, not having them, being in them, being outside of them, and so on and so forth, then uh, uh, then it's uh, inappropriate to, to say that uh, when, when you're asked that kind of a question about what happens to an enlightened being when they pass away, that they, they, uh, they go to some other place. But uh, uh, the... Uh, the, the, he said at the end of that the dialogue, he says, "What I teach now is suffering and the ending of suffering. That's what I teach. <laughs> That's the important thing." So that he's trying to, to bring Anuradha, as far as I can tell from the dialogue, to the point of recognizing, yeah, uh, even with the the, the, the Buddha, the Tathagata sitting right in front of you, even conceiving uh, a being who goes somewhere or is something, yeah, even that much is missing the point. So that. Um, uh, uh, the the mind needs to be brought to that conceiving, forming, and that kind of grasping tendency, because that uh, as long as the mind hangs on to any any particular definition, anything based on seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, any kind of form, any kind of condition whatsoever, that's necessarily going to bring dukkha. And so then he, he finishes that that exchange by saying, "I teach dukkha and the ending of dukkha. That's what I teach. That's the important thing." So I, uh, I feel that these are very uh, useful um, teachings to reflect upon in this respect, because uh, when in, uh, say, meditation, we can have a profound experience. There can be those moments of deep insight where there is that kind of clear knowing, where there's a moment where the body, the mind, the perception, our life story, our age, our name, our gender, our family, everything is seen uh, uh, exactly as it is, there's, there's uh, a cessation of identification that, that grasping stops. And then it's a, a genuine and, and reliable, clear knowing that's there, like, oh! And and there's no, no sense of self in that, that any kind of self-making is recognized. And in that moment, that's a perfectly valid and reliable insight. Uh, then uh, the retreat, or the bell goes at the end of the sitting, <laughs> the retreat comes to an end. When you know you've had that profound insight, and maybe it's really changed the way you see things, but at that moment, it's now a memory. 
And so we can hang on to the memory of that insight and say, oh, I've seen, I've seen things clearly. I know that I'm not attached to the body. I know I'm not attached to like and dislike. I know I'm not attached to my family. Now, that, that is attachment. At that moment, there's the grasping of a memory, the grasping of an idea. And uh, painfully enough, I'm speaking from personal experience here, <laughs> whereby you, you mistake the idea about the experience or the memory of the experience as the the the, uh, the experience itself, the knowledge itself. There's a memory of that clear knowing, but that is not clear knowing itself. That is the memory of that clear experience. And the, and, uh, and again, not just for myself, but for many, many people, unfortunately dozens, probably hundreds of people have had this experience from being on meditation retreats or being in the monastery. And then the, even though at that time the experience was absolutely genuine, there was a clear and reliable insight, uh, they can't understand why they're now why now they're suffering or how they got themselves into such a lot of trouble. <laughs> how come life has become so difficult or painful uh, when it was all so clear? It, made, it, all, it was all so obvious and it made so much sense. And so that that uh, I feel is is uh, really uh, uh, the most helpful aspect of this teaching is the practicalities of how it's talking about being aware in this moment that the that knowing within the knowing is knowing that oh now I've got it this is great it's downhill from here on feeling that's what that <laughs> that's what that feeling is and uh, that we don't mistake the idea for the actuality we don't mistake the memory or the mental image uh, of that event or that insight for that clear knowing itself because the knowing it's not a, a, a an idea it's uh, it's 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 formless. It doesn't have a, a shape. It doesn't have a gender. It doesn't have an age. Like Lampochar is saying, I don't live anywhere and I don't have an age. That that knowing is not a person. It knows all the personal qualities. It knows being male, being female, being older, being younger, being taller, being shorter, being uh, healthy, being sick, and all of the different personal qualities. But it isn't old or young or tall or short or female or male or, or uh, any of those uh, those. Uh, attributes they don't apply that where th that material form feeling perception mental formations consciousness whereby one would describe the tathagata that's been cut off at the root made like a palm tree stump and so on so i feel that it's very valid and helpful to in this respect not just idealizing the buddha and his lifetime but thinking of that's talking about the awakened awareness of your own heart this this very mind and so that it's when he, when i say i'm a man or i'm british or i am 63 years old or i'm a buddhist monk it's the mind that says that's a perception or that's the the the, the that which knows the the perception i'm 63 years old is not 63 <laughs> that which knows the the thought i'm a man is not it's not male uh, that which knows the person isn't a person, uh, and so that that takes a lot of work to 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 keep recollecting that and keeping that alive, not just as an idea, not just walking around saying I'm not a person, I'm not a person. <laughs> That which knows the person isn't a person. It's not just a matter of remembering the words, but that transformation of of attitude. That's the the thing that the quality that really makes uh, the difference. And that's why, you know, with, 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 if there is this this quality, this, this attribute of our own heart, which is awake and aware, which knows, um, 
uh, how come life is so difficult? How come we're still suffering? How come we still get caught into love and hate and fear and jealousy and regret and anger and, and uh, so on and so forth? How does that happen if there is this, this capacity of the heart, if there is this vijja, if this is an attribute of our own being, if this is the, say, the uh, fun, one of the fundamental qualities of of the heart's nature, why is there suffering? <laughs> and uh, the, essentially, the, the simple answer is because of avijja, because of ignorance. That's that's uh, why we uh, we suffer. That's why there is dukkha. That's why we uh, get pulled into like and dislike, uh, uh, regret and nostalgia, uh, hope and, and fear, uh, and uh, all of the various uh, uh, and multiple, I say, kinds of uh, attachments and, and uh, intoxications that the sense world brings. We get we get lost in all of it because of. Avicca, not seeing clearly. So when we use the word avicca, ignorance, again, it's like knowledge or knowing doesn't just mean knowing about. Ignorance doesn't mean not knowing about. <laughs> In the English, just as the word knowing tends to mean having information about something. Um, ignorance tends to mean not having information about something, but in the in the Buddhist language, in in the Pali meaning, avijja is much more unawareness, not seeing clearly. Vijja is that awakened awareness, knowing. Avijja, not knowing, not seeing clearly. So it's when there's a a, a drift uh, from that mindful awake quality, when that is obscured by the habits of uh, of love and hate, fear and hope liking and disliking uh, when the the mind is uh, the attention is entranced and the mind is caught up by objects that produce like and dislike uh, external objects internal objects memories and and moods within us or things that we see here smell taste and touch uh, in the external world whatever it might be that it's uh, when there's ignorance then that when, when the, something that is uh, attractive is experienced then the mind goes oh that's good i want it uh, or if something is unattractive or is threatening, oh, I don't want that, I've got to get away from that. That uh, with ignorance, there is the the imbuing of the light, uh, of the object's uh, sense with uh, with value, that they're likable or they're dangerous, they're not, they're unlikable, uh, they're off-putting. Uh, it, it puts that power into them. And so when there is vicha, when there is awareness, when there's, there is the knowing within the knowing, when that is fully and completely established, then it's known. This is liking, full stop. This is disliking, full stop. Uh, that this is this is all there is. So when uh, Lumpur Sumato speaks, uh, uh, which he does very very frequently about consciousness, uh, then this is uh, how he. Uh, frames, uh, phrases this exact quality of awakened awareness. And so many, many of his teachings, he talks about consciousness in this way. And it's a, a bit of a unique usage of the, of the term consciousness, um, but that's uh, really this, this liberated awakened awareness that Lumpur Sumedho is talking about. And that it's not the kind of consciousness that you get um, in, say, uh, talking about seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, but it's rather that which knows, that which is awake, that which is aware, the the, the puru in its most uh, purified or uh, transcendent 
uh, state or, or at its uh, most transcendent level, that kind of consciousness which is completely aware and attuned to the uh, the field of sense experience, but is totally unidentified or unattached to it. So that we have um, within the, the the teachings that Lumpur Sumedho puts uh, puts across over and over and over again, he's talking about that being awake, being aware, and that's <laughs> if that's established, then everything that's skillful follows from that. Now, maybe the, the last thing to, to, to share then is um, uh, how if we, we take that principle, okay, just be awake, just be aware, and that, that's, that sort of puts us on the track for everything, and that's all good comes from that, great. And there's quite a number of teachings, particularly in, in modern times, uh, that uh, uh, sort of take that particular principle and then uh, kind of run with it, as it were. And so that they might be based on, on Buddhist teachings, on, on Vipassana meditation, or on Advaita Vedanta, or Dzogchen teachings from the Tibetan tradition. And uh, it's a pure awareness, that's all you need. As long as the mind is awake and aware, everything, everything is good, right? <laughs> And so that, uh, uh, again, having been around in the in the Buddhist field and, and teaching in the West for a long, long time, I've, I've encountered many, many people who've followed those principles or, or taken those teachings and, and created a lot of trouble in their own lives. And uh, uh, I have myself. You know, that the way you you take that principle and you attach to the memory of it, you attach to the idea of it, saying, "Oh yeah, just be awake and everything is good. <laughs> just just be fully open and aware." and uh, and, and uh, everything is just such, everything is thus. You take the idea of it or the memory of it, and then that you use that as a kind of a trump card to outplay everything else. <laughs> and so that uh, uh, over and over again, that's uh, people trying to play the ultimate reality trump card, or they just, just be awake, just be aware, and feeling that that solves or everything, or that gives all the the uh, that's the one quality that makes a, a, a comprehensive difference uh, in life. It's like, yes, it does, if that quality is genuinely there. If it's genuinely unobstructed and present moment by moment, yes, <laughs> that's true. If it's just the memory of it or the idea of it or like a badge that you wear or something on your T-shirt saying, I am awakened consciousness, that's what I am. You know, I am Buddha, I am the ultimate reality. You know, put that on a T-shirt, that doesn't mean you're actually... <laughs> functioning for that basis it means you've got a t-shirt that's all it means and so that um, you might like that idea of you know I am I am awakened consciousness or I am I am the ultimate reality but that is just a set of words it's just a concept and it can be that by by hanging on to the badge or the the idea that you miss the fact that there's a, a whole um, catalog of attachments and fears and hopes and uh, and identifications that are going on uh, hanging on to the things that you like rejecting the things that you dislike having fixed opinions and judgments about other people uh, that have become completely invisible because you've you're, you're not paying attention to those attachments because you're 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 believing in that the idea that your mind is seeing it all as such or as thus or is truly uh, awakened and liberated so uh, what i feel we have in, in the buddhist tradition and the guidance that the buddha gives uh, with respect to this of the precepts uh, is uh, extraordinarily skillful because along with vijja, one of the attributes of the Buddha that we, we recite uh, when uh, describing the, the qualities of the Buddha, one of those is vijja charana sampano, which means um, perfect in knowledge and conduct or, 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 or 
impeccable in conduct and understanding uh, or impeccable in in, uh, in knowledge and, and awareness. Uh, vijja, as in awakened awareness. Charana means conduct or activity. Uh, sampano means impeccable or uh, accomplished, uh, of, of fully, uh, say, uh, fully embodying. And so I feel that's one of the most, particularly in the West and in this area, this is one of the most useful and practical aspects of the teaching because what it's saying is, yes, there is vijja, there is the heart that, which is awake to everything as such, all, all phenomena are completely empty. Uh, the unconditioned is the, the fundamental reality. You know, that, that's the, the, the truth. Uh, and all conditioned dhammas are like dreams, shadows, uh, bubbles, like, you know, like foam on the water. Oh, the five khandas are completely empty. Yes, <laughs> there is that uh, that knowledge, that that uh, awakened awareness. There is that vijja, but its partner, uh, the other side, is charana, which is conduct. And so that by uh, yes, the five khandas are completely empty, but uh, the uh, the the way that the mind relates uh, to those empty five khandas makes a difference to to uh, to other people and to to uh, to the perceptions of the world and so charana is how that uh, is describing how that awakened awareness manifests in the material world and so uh, it it uh, manifests say, again talking about the qualities of a buddha so a buddha is incapable or an enlightened being uh, as the Buddha said, is uh, is incapable of taking life. They cannot deliberately take the life of another being. Uh, they cannot steal anything. They they uh, they cannot deliberately take something that is not theirs. They are completely uninterested in sexual activity. The brahmacharya is completely natural to them. Uh, sexual desire does not arise for them. They can't relate to other beings on a sexual basis. They cannot tell a lie. Uh, lying is is impossible for them. And, uh, and and so forth, so that the um, the the qualities of in the enlightened mind <laughs> manifest in extraordinary uh, sensitivity to the, the the material world, to human society, to the living uh, to the living world, and so that might manifest in in terms of, of an enlightened being and their natural conduct, but also uh, the way that the Buddha established the eight precepts as a training form for the lay community, saying you know one day a week on the Upposita day, the, the the lunar quarters, the Buddha established this based on the the natural conduct of the arahant. There's a a very again a sutta I like to quote very often called the Uposita Sutta. It's um, in the uh, the book of the uh, the eights, I think, the um, in the uh, in the numerical discourses. And the, the Buddha says uh, uh, all their lives from a time of enlightenment till the end of their life, uh, an, uh, an enlightened one, an arahant, never deliberately takes the life of another being. Uh, wouldn't it be a good thing for the lay community on these lunar days to uh, that, uh, undertake that, that standard of conduct? And in that way, they will, be, they will be living as the arahants do, and that will be for their long-lasting welfare and happiness. Similarly, for uh, not stealing and not engaging in sexual activity, not lying, uh, uh, to uh, refrain from intoxicants, to um, uh, to 
only eat in one part of the day in the morning time to uh, to refrain from singing dancing entertainments beautification adornment and to use a simple sleeping place uh, uh, a uh, an unadorned and uh, and simple sleeping place and for each one of those he says and this this way they'll be living as the arahants do that'll be for their long lasting welfare and happiness so he's describing how you know, if you um if you if you are living as the arahants do if you deliberately take on that kind of mode of conduct then you're you're able to directly experience the, the benefits of having uh, that kind of, a, of an attitude if you take that on as a way of behavior then you can see the the, the beneficial and peaceful results that come from that similarly with the the five precepts uh, for ordinary everyday life rather than the special observance for the for the moon days that uh, what is being done uh, with uh, with the precepts is saying this is how you limit the mind getting lost in what it likes what it dislikes feelings of uh, possessiveness feelings of desire feelings of self uh, self benefit that uh, if you take the the five precepts just as a guidance for for a layperson, um, then uh, in terms of the relationship of the mind to the sense world, you're causing yourself a lot less trouble, <laughs> and you're also causing other people a lot less trouble. You're making it much easier to recognize how like and dislike operates if you are uh, following these precepts, because you're not creating any kind of emotionally loaded karma. You're not stealing anything. You're not killing anything you're not flirting with somebody's partner you're you're not being dishonest you're not getting lost in in uh, in heedless mind states with drunkenness and such like and so that uh, it's uh, it's saying how the the um if we take those uh, those precepts as a standard then that is uh, helping us to recognize the uh, the the natural effects of the awake mind we don't get pulled by those instinctual habits of like and dislike the kind of animal ancestry that we have from these these animal bodies that we have that have hunger and fear and sexual desire and aggression and territoriality and all of that that goes with the the physical body but rather we can know those 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 uh, instinctual urges and, and patterns we can know them we can uh, say uh, train the, the mind to, uh, to not blindly follow those so that in terms of if we really want to establish this knowing within the knowing to to live from that place of awakened awareness then uh, taking the standard of the five precepts or the eight precepts is a really practical and skillful way of enabling that uh, that awareness to be fully uh, uh, fully to fully mature to be fully embodied to be fully actualized if we ignore the the effect of charana of conduct if we ignore the precepts then that idea of awakened awareness we might still revere it but it's it's never going to really bring liberation it's going to uh, be more of a, a a lovely ideal that we hang on to but we can find ourselves drifting further and further away from the actuality of that awakened and aware quality but if we uh, wish it for it to be really uh, fully embodied, to be um, brought to its full potential, then its natural partner is beautiful conduct. And so, uh, again, just to, to say that that's uh, really uh, something to reflect upon, that the Buddha didn't have to restrain himself from killing living beings. He didn't have to, to force himself not to tell lies. <laughs> he wasn't having to, to, uh, to, to hold himself back from being acquisitive and getting stuff because 
uh, the enlightened mind, the, the 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 truly awakened enlightened mind, then those um, uh, the conduct is naturally beautiful, wholesome, uh, and uh, and noble. So I offer these thoughts for consideration today, and I hope that um, some of this is uh, is useful. Take take whatever is beneficial, helpful, and keep it. Whatever is not helpful, then please uh, leave that aside. There's quite a number of questions have been sent in, so um, I'll, uh, I'll respond to a few of these. I'm also uh, uh, happy to take one or two uh, questions from the, everybody gathered here today. But uh, uh, so I'll try to include everybody who wishes to be included. Dear Ajahn Amaro, and this is actually relating to testing Dhamma for testing time, so that was last week, but anyway. Uh, I've not yet heard anyone mention my experience that my simplified life I'm living now during the pandemic is much better than the overscheduled, overcommitted, overcomplicated life I made before. I'm no longer working two jobs, trying to maintain my marriage, my health, my home and a garden and go to school. Now, working only one job, taking care of my health, home and garden, my marriage is very happy and relaxed, and I'm rested and smiling. I cannot think of when I've been so content. My question is twofold. First, I'm reluctant to be honest with others about how wonderful my life is now, as most others are very unhappy. Second, I'm very much not interested in returning to working two jobs, although the second job is teaching yoga to those in need for free a much-needed offering to my community suffering from physical and emotional distress. Might you offer any thoughts? I cannot thank you enough for the freedom your teaching has brought me, though I live thousands of miles away. I have not yet connected with another Ajahn's teachings, as I have with yours. Well, very glad to be of service. Uh, that's from somebody in Washington, uh, USA. Um, well, uh, you're not alone in this. There's quite a few people um, expressing their their sort of uh, embarrassment, like, I'm really enjoying this. I'm not quite sure I should say this, but this is great. <laughs> and quite a few monastics saying, you yeah, know, can we do this <laughs> for longer, more often? Uh, and uh, a sense of a, a guilty pleasure. Um, I, I think particularly for, for Westerners, there's uh, what we call survivor's guilt. Is is quite a common condition in the in the Western world, and um, the uh, uh, being allowed to enjoy something by ourselves is is a a, um, a, a an unusual condition. We, we we don't really comfortably do that. That we uh, I think it's something to do with our um, our sort of societal conditioning that. Uh, uh, enjoying ourselves, um, you know, just to to, to be, uh, uh, say, liking to be at home, liking to do things that, that you're doing. We, we call it a guilty pleasure. Why does it have to be guilty? You know, why, why can't we just enjoy it? You know, it's it's a strange thing that we have to apologize or we have to be, um, uh, say, accounting for why we feel comfortable or why we feel good so that uh, um i also uh, uh i feel very um even though I, you know the, the pandemic has brought the misery and death and pain to countless numbers of people and and it's a, a lot of distress physically and and in terms of health and well-being and economically and in in a large number of ways around the world also on day-to-day -day basis there is a sense of oh life is really peaceful and quiet here at amravati <laughs> this is enjoyable 
And I think to to not make it into something we have to account for or feel guilty about, but rather, well, this is uh, this is a pleasant feeling that um, I think there's a, a, a maybe something from the Judeo-Christian conditioning or maybe some sort of Calvinist background. Puritanical background, like you shouldn't be having fun, you know, it's bad for you, and that uh, that is some sort of um, reflex or, or an attitude that's come down through through the centuries. But I, I feel that uh, one of the things that we get through Buddha Dhamma is that if something is pleasant, let yourself enjoy it. Don't don't pretend that the pleasure is not there. Uh, you don't have to to feel guilty or bad about it. You're not feeling glad that other people are, are sick or miserable, but you're you're just acknowledging this is pleasant, this is delightful. You know, there's there's the sampajanya. You're taking the whole picture into account, but you are um, uh, you are say just allowing that the pleasantness of that experience to be fully known. And so that uh, uh, I feel that's that's something that is a, a, a very <laughs> helpful in introduced into Western society from the Buddhist tradition is that uh, don't feel guilty about enjoying what is enjoyable. There's a, a dialogue uh, I like to, to quote um, from, uh, it's, it's not from the, the, the suttas itself, it's from the later sort of commentarial literature, but Lumpur Cha used to, to describe when uh, this incident when he was talking about this area and uh, it's a, a, on a particular occasion that the Buddha had been invited to a, a, a meal at somebody's home in one of the palaces and this great banquet of food has been offered and and uh, Ananda who's with the Buddha makes the comment of uh, of course you know, the Tathagata is so completely equanimous that you know all of this food has you know, no effect on him whatsoever you know and and the, the Buddha predictably says not so Ananda not so you know, this was, he was saying very very regularly not so Ananda. So the, 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 the taste of the Tathagata is extremely acute. And uh, he takes his food out of his bowl and gives it to Ananda and says, eat this Ananda and you will taste things as the Tathagata tastes them. So rather than everything being sort of bland and, and, uh, and tasteless, Ananda puts his food in his mouth and there's this explosion of, of taste, like this kind of incredible sort of kaleidoscope of flavors that is like, wow! And uh, then, of course, Ananda says, this is amazing, this is incredible. Yeah, the Tathagata experiences taste to such an acute degree, but yet he is completely equanimous and undisturbed. And, and so then um, Lumpur Cha would, would use that story as a way of saying you know, that uh, to to receive uh, the sense world as it is, that um, when you feel pain and, and misery, don't add on anything to it. Don't create papancha. To don't uh, well, they literally mean don't embellish the curry. Don't create pundang around it. If something is pleasant, again, don't embellish it. Don't don't have to, don't have to add anything to it. You don't have to apologize for it. It's delicious. It's a delicious taste. Fine. You don't have to apologize for it. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to hang on to it. Just here it is. It's like this. And so uh, uh, that um, I feel is a good principle to bring in. So uh, and then in terms of uh, enjoying the, the situation, I don't think anybody deliberately created the pandemic as a global uh, a global disaster in order to have more time off work. You know, if you did it deliberately so you would, wouldn't have to go to work, then I would say you could you should feel guilt. Guilt would be an appropriate emotion to feel, but um, you're just experiencing the flow of circumstances as they are, and it happens to be some pleasant aspect to it. So, reviewing your intention is part of it. You, you know, you didn't intend this to happen, but here it is. 
that uh, and uh, and then um, with the, with respect to papancha or conceptual proliferation, just using it as an opportunity to not not embellish the curry, not to kind of add anything to it. Say so, this is delicious, just enjoy it. And maybe the the last thing to say on that was uh, speaking of eating, <laughs> right here in this sala at Amravati many years ago, uh, when when I was in my first ten years as a monk, I was a very ardent ascetic. I used to have a lot of ascetic practices I did, and was very very strict about the the things that I ate and what I wouldn't eat, and uh, and so forth. And then uh, it was it was in, in that era we all used to eat uh, the sangha, the, the nuns and the monks uh, used to all eat together here in the sala and the lay community, and um, so. Lumpur would sit in the middle at this time, and, and then uh, and and then the other monks would be down one side, the nuns would be down another side, and so I was um, uh, the the second monk at that point, uh, and so. Lumpur Samedo had been given this this very rich Danish pastry, uh, and he put it in the lid of his bowl and passed it to me and said, "This is for you, venerable." And so I, I, I took uh, I took the pastry and immediately started to hand it on to the next monk. And he said, "No, it's for you. I want you to have it." And I thought, oh, and there was this look in his eye that says. I mean it, <laughs> and I thought. Well, I was about to say, but but you know, I'm I'm the ascetic. You know, I, I don't I don't have nice things. I, I I give everything away. You know, that's that's me. That's what I do. And and he gave me this look, like you know what I'm saying. And so I thought. I thought. Well, I'm I'm his disciple. So here's the teaching. Eat the pastry, and so uh, that was that was a teaching. Uh, it was a really very useful teaching. I had a delicious pastry. I'm not asking for Danish pastries. But this is not. A, this is a. So please do not flood the kitchen with Danish pastries with my name written on them. Um, but uh, just as an example, uh, that yeah, that it's not a matter of you know the practice is not a matter of pushing away the delightful or the pleasant when it comes, but. To enjoy it without anything, anything to it. I wasn't seeking the pastry. I wasn't asking for it, but there it is. And and he was giving me that challenge. Can you just eat this, enjoy it, and not ma not make a person out of it? So to continue, dear Arjun Amaro, thank you and the Amravati Sangha for the opportunity you gave us to deepen our understanding on Buddha Dhamma. My academic quote unquote question, hoping it's on topic and appropriate, is. If my memory is accurate, Ajahn Sumedho often refers the word Buddha to the awakened, the awakened or knowing quality of awareness, and Dhamma as ultimate reality or awareness itself. Does this view equate with the Advaita Vedanta terms of Chit, knowledge, and Sat, truth, existence, or reality itself? I'd appreciate a clarification because my background is Advaita Vedanta, and I am now immersing myself fully in Lord Buddha's teachings. Well, good question, and it kind of depends on which Buddhist you talk to and which Advaita Vedantist you talk to. <laughs> um, uh, the, I think it's good to recognize that, uh, as I was saying earlier, that uh, Lumpur Sumato and the forest tradition style comes very much from the basis of experience rather than from theory, and so that the, the the basis of practice and personal uh, experience or personal insight is what things are, are grounded on. And so that um, I would say that, and also the way that Lumpur Sumedho has talked about it over the years, is that there's a, a very close parallel between those qualities of um, 
of Satchitananda uh, that you have in, in Advaita Vedanta and um, these qualities of, of awakened awareness in the, the Buddhist tradition. Also, uh, I'm aware that saying this and, and going on, being recorded and, 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 and scattered, uh, broadcast around the world, uh, then people will be uh, eager to write in and set me straight. Uh, but that that's okay. Uh, I mean, uh, people say, well, in the Abhidharma it says this, or in the scriptures it says that, or in the Advaita Vedanta, in the Upanishads it says this. But, uh, and it's 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 uh, absolutely fine and true that the scriptures can say different, say different things and they can be quoted and, and they can back up particular positions. But um, I'm just, uh, from my own experience, reading Ad Advaita Vedanta teachings like Sri Ramana Maharshi or Nisargadatta Maharaj, this kind of uh, uh, Advaita masters, um, uh, and then being familiar with, with Buddhist teachings, then it, the, there's a very close parallel, I would say, and that um, rather than getting too philosophical about it and, and trying to tie up all the loose ends, I would say it's, it's good enough to consider there's a close parallel um, but uh, you won't find uh, Lumpo Sumedha having uh, uh, having written an academic treatise about the relationship between the uh, the Puru the, uh, of the of the Thai forest Ajans and uh, and the uh, Advaita Vedanta teachings on on awareness. But uh, rather, it's in the, the flow of teachings and in the flow of practice. Then, yeah, th that um, uh, those. Say qualities are, are encountered; they are they are experienced, and it, what each individual means when they use the word like uh, uh, awareness or uh, chit, meaning knowledge, or sat, meaning truth. What is the quality that they are using those words to refer to? What is the referent? Each person's experience is going to be different, so. I would say rather than trying to pin down definitions conceptually and make it all line up in a, in a neat way, the most important thing is to practice <laughs> and to develop that quality of awareness. And if you're in doubt, then to develop an awareness of that doubting feeling as, as it arises. And then as it passes away, there's awareness of doubt present and awareness of doubt having passed away. Um, and so that, the, that is really the, the most helpful reference point, I would say. Uh, incidentally, the, the first Advaita Vedanta teachings I ever read were in the library of Wat Pananachat in 1978. So the, the book uh, with the two-volume edition of I Am That was one of the very few books of the Wat Pananachat library in northeast Thailand. So it was one of the first uh, books that I read when I arrived there in uh, 42, year, 42 years ago. Yeah, yeah, something like that. So... Next one. It seems to me that the Buddha teaches us to be mindful throughout daily life and to strive to always know what we are doing, thinking and feeling. But when I attempt this all the time, I become increasingly overwhelmed to the point that I cannot continue the practice. How can one achieve balance with this? Does the Buddha perhaps advise on healthier forms of distraction that can be incorporated into daily life? <laughs> A good question. Yeah, you're not the first person to ask this. And uh, it comes up amongst the monastic community as well. When you get uh, a bit too, uh, maybe purist is not the, quite the right word. Uh, the um, when one gets too sort of focused on the the formality of the practice and sort of I've got to do my practice and only formal meditation is the important thing, and everything else is just a distraction, then we can make it too tight. And one of the reasons why uh, Lumpur Chas 
uh, teaching is, uh, is so sort of popular and widespread was that he did allow quite a lot of latitude for people to develop their energies in different ways outside of the formal practice. And so that if you were, uh, if you were gifted at building and construction, you know, he would let you uh, help lead building programs. So if you really liked um, sort of crocheting, you know, like this, this bag, my shoulder bag, this was crocheted by uh, Lumpur Sumato. So one of his forms of occupational therapy, when he was and he said this himself, it's in print in a few places, when he was getting completely bored with meditation and just the life of Wobba Pong was just too bleak and too barren, um, he would crochet things. And his sister was an arts and crafts teacher in the USA and she'd send him these books on crochet and macrame and such like. And so he became quite a, an accomplished crochet artist. So I've had this, this, um, this yarn, this bag, since 1986. So it's held together very well. There's one mistake that I have, uh, I have found, only one, one false stitch in the whole thing. Everything else is completely even. He might have put that one the wrong stitch in on purpose. But, uh, so that kind of uh, uh, say skillful occupational therapy for meditators is very much a part of at least our tradition and the, the Lumpur Chah's style. And so for myself, I'm, I'm a bookish person. I, I like, I do words uh, and I, I like words. And so everywhere I go, I tend to be surrounded by books and my exchanges with people tend to be very wordy, as people will have noticed. Um, and so uh, I don't sort of hide that or, or make excuses for it. I just, I know I'm a wordy kind of a person. I like words and I, I like writing things and reading things. And so I let that be a medium which I can burn off a bit of, uh, of uh, energy. And there's also those kind of worldly satisfactions that come from that. Just as if you're, if you're fond of painting, uh, then you can do decorations for the shrine or, or uh, help out with the, uh, the refurbishment of places. If you're into construction, you can des help design buildings or choose the, the layout of, of um, the, the landscape of a new, a new construction. Like we've got a whole rebuilding program going on here at Amravati and many of the community are doing a lot of <laughs> input into the, uh, the, the shape and form of, of different uh, buildings. And, uh, and so that there are those kind of um, ways. And I think that, again, the precepts are a really good guide. If it's not breaking the precepts, if it's something that's got a, a wholesome quality to it or some kind of uh, beneficial um, and, and a non-destructive result, then, then whatever is interesting and pleasing, whether it's macrame or, or painting or, or, or um, you know, writing books, um, uh, going to, to do volunteer work at a local school, uh, you know, all kinds of different things that we can, we can find that uh, just look through your range of interests and, and follow a few things up and see where the, um, where the most benefit can come, what will be most pleasing. And uh, don't, don't think of it as not practicing, but rather a medium which, in the, which helps you to practice more fully and completely. Because what, what you find is if you make it too tight, then you just end up giving up completely. So oh, this is too difficult, it's too awful. And you're back to the pub, or you just uh, shut, you kind of shut down the vibhava tanha, the the annihilationist tendency, kind of can easily take over, and, and the mind just I fed up with that whole spiritual thing. I've had enough. I'm just going to go back to the pub, going back to the beach. It was all a, a waste of time. It just made me miserable. And then through a reactive. Uh, um, uh, an unconscious uh, reactive process, then you, you shut the door on a lot of wholesome qualities. And so that that's, I think, one of the reasons why there's 350 branch monasteries now of Lumpur Chah's um, group, because 
people find that balance of both formal practice and, and spiritual integrity and sincerity, plus a bit of occupational therapy <laughs> and useful things to do, ways of helping each other, ways to, to work together. It's a good balance and it makes it a, a livable life. And that uh, if you make it too tight uh, because of idealism, you're, you're not helping yourself or anybody else in the long run. Okay, next one. Thank you, Ajahn, and all those involved for putting these uh, on these Dhamma talks that have been a source of wisdom for me, particularly in these peculiar times. I'm not certain my question directly relates to the topic, so apologies if this strays at all. Apart from a period when I was deeply involved in Buddhist practice over a decade ago, my practice only recently has gone beyond passive listening to Dhamma talks from Thai forest monks. Recently, I've decided to put effort into the practice so that I can know for myself the truth of the teachings. While I feel that I have enough faith to patiently endure with this practice, a part of me has doubts about my ability as a layperson to come to know the truths of the Dhamma. This doubt is combined with a fear of being reborn. I don't want to be reborn, and yet I don't see a likely prospect of putting on the robe anytime soon. Can you provide any reassurance that a layperson can realistically come to know the truths of the Dhamma? I appreciate that the practice is long and requires dedication, but it would help to know that it can be done and has been done by numbers of lay people. Well, if it's reassuring uh, at all, I would say, yeah, I've, uh, over the, the years, um, I've seen uh, numerous, numerous people, uh, lay people, uh, who've been lay people and come into the monastery or who've never um, thought uh, uh, seriously at all about entering monastic life, benefiting very greatly and meaningfully and genuinely from uh, from the Dhamma, practice of Dhamma and meditation. But I feel that uh, rather than just me telling you, yes, it's worthwhile, <laughs> take my word for it, um, I, I think that it's most helpful to, to trust your own experience so that uh, I, you know, I don't, don't know where you're living or what your situation is. But uh, if you're, uh, say, engaged in a period of meditation and, uh, and things come together in such a way that, that you have a, a very clear moment, and that in that moment, everything is, uh, uh, say, obvious to the mind. That uh, there's a, a very a clear seeing, an un, a completely unbiased seeing. Even if it's only for a second or a couple of seconds, there's a, there can be, if there's a recognition of, oh, it's just seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, arising and passing away. And that which is aware of it is not attached to it. Wow. Oh, and these things of me, I think, and I feel, and I want, and I used to, and I, I am going to, those are just thoughts too. And they arise here, and they're all empty. Wow. Well, that's great. Oh. And in that oh, uh, even if it's, again, just, for, uh, just a finger snap, that uh, is extraordinarily beneficial, because at that moment, uh, there's a clear seeing. That that moment, you know it's doable. You know that there is a, a capacity of the mind to know things clearly, uh, and for that freedom uh, to be uh, to be manifestable, that can come into being, that can be embodied in your life. You know that. So uh, maybe uh, that's making you feel worse. Oh, I've had any of those moments. <laughs> So I'm sorry if that is the case, but most of us have done. And sometimes it's not when we're sitting on the cushion. Sometimes it's when we're in the middle of the washing up. And seriously, you're just standing there at the sink. And then 
you're looking out the, the window over the sink and, he, and the mind goes, oh, it's just this. And there's nobody there at the sink, nobody doing anything and nobody not doing anything. It's just absolutely this. And it's all perfect. And there's still more dishes to wash, but it's absolutely perfect as it is. Oh, so most of us have had those kind of moments and often uh, uh, more, <laughs> more regularly than we, than we realize. So to, to be aware of that, to, to look at those, those clear moments and to, to trust that, to see that it's not just a someone in the sort of literally sitting in the high seat <laughs> uh, telling you, yes, you know, this is the ex-cathedra ex means from the seat, an ex-cathedra ex statement, yes, you can be reassured. That's, that's still just words coming through a machine at you. Um, more important is that, that recognition in your own heart, like, oh, there is peace is possible, clarity is possible, freedom is possible. Here it is, it's like this. Oh, and that's the, 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 the thing to be guided by rather than the words of a, a religious authority figure. Okay, so moving on. I began to try to meditate a few weeks into lockdown. I found that my mind is becoming louder during meditation as time goes on. However, my reaction to life has begun to change. For example, I pause before getting cross, and I think more of not minding about things that used to worry me. Why then do I find difficult to quiet my mind whilst meditating? In other words, everything has swapped. I used to be a lot more stressed in real life, but now able to shut my eyes with calmer thought. Uh, and, I, I, okay, so there's a misprint there, sorry. Uh, I used to be a lot more stressed in real life, but be able to shut my eyes with calmer thoughts. Is it possible being still now means uh, buried karma is surfacing? Thanks to all at Amravati for the inspiring lifeline that you provide. Um, so uh, is buried karma surfacing? Possibly. <laughs> uh, I think it's, it's important to recognize, that, again, as I said earlier today, 99% of what we experience is pretty mysterious. And exactly where things are coming from and why they're, and why they're taking shape the way they do is not really uh, anything that can be pinned down. You, we can't say exactly why we experience things. Uh, what, uh, what you're describing here, though, is, is a fairly common experience, um, both people coming on a meditation retreat, people coming to live in the monastery, uh, again, uh, if you read uh, uh, Lumpur Sumato's teachings, uh, he, he would make the comment frequently that I used to think I was quite a nice person. You know, I was a I was a sort of peacenik in Berkeley. I was a, a kind of a spiritual type, and I thought of myself as a you know a wholesome, good-hearted, honest person. Then I come into the monastery. I sit down in this hut, and he was living in a place where there was um, there was uh, formal practice of twenty-two hours a day, kind of. Uh, just him and his hut and the, and the arms round. And I think, actually, I don't even think he went on the arms round in the morning. I think one of the novices brought him a, a little pinto of, of food each day. So it was just him and his hut and his mind, you know, him and his kuti. And so he said, so suddenly I'm filled with all this rage and restlessness and lust and uh, and vengeance, feelings of you know wanting revenge. And uh, I was a nice person. <laughs> what, what happened to me? And I'm a Buddhist monk now. I'm a, I'm a novice in a Buddhist monastery. I'm supposed to be a professional good person. And all this terrible stuff is coming up. So I, I, I think also a lot of it is uh, not just. Um, 
that perhaps um, buried karma or uh, old habits are just coming to the surface. But there's less distractions. There's less things to, to be busy with, less things to, to burn off the excess energy and put the attention on. So that when you, you, you bring um, your, your mind to, uh, to what's going on inside you and you're less pay, paying attention to the people around you or what they're doing, what they're saying, or uh, external affairs, and just bringing more attention into your own house, as it were, like if you're busy with your work or you're or, or going around and about the place and looking out in the world and then you're spending all your time at home, you're literally noticing, oh my goodness, that needs cleaning. Oh, that, that's been broken for months. Or, oh, that, when did we last paint that? Or, oh my goodness, who left all this stuff here? Oh, oh I guess I did. And uh, yeah, so recognizing all of the, un, the undone housework around the place that uh, it's been there all the time, but you just were putting your attention elsewhere and so you hadn't noticed it. So personally, I would say don't worry too much exactly where it's coming from, whether it's old karma surfacing or whether it's the effect of just having a narrower field of attention to simply be recognizing, okay, well, wherever it's coming from, whatever the cause is right now, it's like this. And to uh, to be meeting it, to be receiving it as it takes shape, as it arises moment by moment. Because we can burn a lot of energy uh, creating stories about where things come from, what it really means, and is there something kind of deep and dark and nasty buried in my my id, in the the, the black tide of uh, kind of swampy, fetid basement of my being. There's there's all these kind of nasty creatures ready to rise up. So well, maybe or maybe not. <laughs> Don't, don't worry too much about it, but right now, you know, there's this restless feeling, or there's this quiet feeling, or there's this, this agitated feeling, or, or, or there's this sleepy feeling. It's like this. And just to, to meet with an open heart, whatever is arising in the present, is the most helpful thing. Okay, next one. How can we know that we are doing the right vipassana? <laughs> what is rightness? Well, the um, I I, uh, I I feel we have to be cautious about using the word right as a, a mythology about looking for the right thing and the the, the right thing that I should be doing. Um, in in the Pali, the word that's translated as right is samma, which uh, uh, it comes from, uh, it's related to the words for harmony. And so that when, when you have a, a stringed instrument, like a, a vina, an Indian instrument, or like a violin, uh, if the strings are, are tuned correctly, uh, then they are sama, they are in harmony with each other. They are, they are the, the tensions that bring a harmonious set of notes. And so that that right, rightness is not right as opposed to wrong, but it's right as in attuned with reality. So in terms of doing the right vipassana, <laughs> I think that that rightness, the only uh, genuine measure for it, like the ear is the measure for rightness for between the strings of an instrument, uh, that when things are off key, they're too sharp or too flat, that's what we mean by dukkha. Dukkha is that feeling of wrongness or disharmony or discord, that things are out of tune, they're out of kilter, the wheel is off balance. So that um, dukkha or not dukkha, that's really the only reliable measure in terms of practice. So with, with respect to practicing vipassana, looking at the result so that the the effort is made let's say practicing in a particular way okay how am i doing vipassana uh, i'm following instructions uh, how literally am i taking those am i sure that uh, that i'm i've been hearing those those in a skillful way have i made my own interpretation what's the result of the way i'm 
following those instructions? What are the habits that I've fallen into? Uh, and what is the result that those habits bring? So there needs to be a bit of investigation. So what we call yoniso manasikara, wise reflection or investigation, amavijaya, and looking at what you're doing, why you're doing it. Um, are you faithfully following instructions? Are you using your imagination? Uh, uh, what are you being guided by? And particularly, what's the effect of the way you've been doing things? So that looking at the results of the, the actions we've been taking, it's called vimangsa, looking at the results, and then being guided by those results. Say, so, well, I'm being very faithful and doing everything correctly, but I'm really attached to this correctness, the feeling of, oh, you know, the, the Ajahn or the Sayadaw would be cross if, 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 he, uh, if they heard that I was doing it like this rather than like that. But, oh, okay, so there's a fear of punishment in there or being judged by an authority. Uh -huh. Does it need to be that way? Or who is this for? Is this to please the Ajahn or the Sayadaw? Or is this to, to end suffering? What's this for? <laughs> so using that kind of reflection, exploring intention, and particularly looking at the results of the way we've been working, and then being guided by that. And so if you, uh, again, like with, with the strings of an instrument, if, it's, if the dukkha sensation says too sharp, then loosen up. If it's uh, too flat, then tighten up and uh, just make those adjustments to the practice uh, accordingly. Dear Ajahn Amaro, these talks are truly helpful. Thanks from the bottom of my heart. I understand the Dharma teachings and try to follow them to the best of my ability. My question is the following. What's the best way to handle a day when we simply do not have enough energy to be positive? Climate change, politicians and human greed really frighten me. Well, you're not alone in that. <laughs> and uh, this is, again, this is quite a, a common question. And I think in the last few weeks, I've responded to similar questions or points that we, we can be very idealistic. I think, oh, I should be in a positive frame of mind, or I want to be energetic and enthusiastic. I, I, I'm feeling depressed and angry and upset, and I'm shouting at the television or... or um, uh, I'm uh, speaking to my printer because it won't obey me and uh, getting upset with with, uh, uh, <laughs> the, with the people I live with. I don't want to be this way. How can I get rid of this irritation and and uh, reacti reactivity and be positive and kind and have, be filled with loving kindness? So the uh, again, this is from from Lumpur Sumato's teachings. I found it incredibly helpful. He would point out how we're, we're so regularly being guided by idealism. I shouldn't be this way. I shouldn't have this angry, jealous, restless feeling. I should be peaceful and calm and wise and skillful. Says so, so in the in the sutta. <laughs> but that's what I should be. So we're trying to climb over this negative state to get to this positive place on the other side. This uh, you climb over this. Uh, uh, afflicted me to get to this other uh, prospective me on the other side of that. And he would say, don't do that. That just creates more, more affliction and difficulty. Instead, have metta, have loving kindness for that dullness, that restlessness, that jealousy, that, that reactivity. So I would say, um, if you haven't got the, the energy to be positive, to be mindful uh, as best you can of the negativity, <laughs> to say, here is a grumpy, negative, reactive feeling. Here am I shouting at, at, uh, at my, my screen again. <laughs> uh, here am I curling up in a heap under the duvet because I can't face the day again. That's what this feeling is. I'm not saying that's what you should do, but if that's what's happening, to be this, uh, to be recognizing, oh, this is, the, this is all too much, I'm exhausted, I can't face it feeling, that's what this is.
So you're not saying it's good or bad, you're saying, here it is in this moment. And I found that approach so helpful and liberating, because it's in a mysterious way, that opening of the heart to this negative, afflicted, unskillful, <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, say, um, reactive feeling, is exactly the thing that helps the the, the, the letting go of it and the, the maturation of it. If you try to push it aside or, or suppress it or just criticize it, it makes it stronger. But by opening the heart to this is our angry, reactive, profane uh, mindset. Okay, here it is. <laughs> that okay, here it is is the cu the curative balancing agent. Okay. This one's a bit more philosophical, cosmological. What happens after the universe dies? The Buddha teaches that everything is impermanent, so even if we reach nirvana, what happens when all is gone? Thank you very much in advance for your response and for your teaching. Um, well, uh, in the, the, the Buddhist conception of the universe, um, rather there, than there being a single Big Bang that then leads to the uh, ex expansion of the universe and then the, the heat death, uh, the quote-unquote, the end of the universe. Um, it's much more of a, um, rather than a big bang, it's a big bounce model. And so that uh, the Buddha describes many, many times in the teachings, um, looking through past lifetimes, he says many, uh, m uh, many um, thousands of experiences of universal expansion, many thousands, uh, many uh, uh, hundreds of thousands of experiences of universal contraction. So there's a big bang, the universe reaches a limit, then it, sh it shrinks again, comes to a big crunch, then it expands again. Uh, so it's a, it's a bouncing, <laughs> one universe coming to being, doing its thing, coming to an end, and that's called a, a universal cycle or a kalpa. And um, then uh, also uh, within the Buddhist cosmology, then uh, there's been an incalculable numbers of these kalpas, these uh, these uh, eons, uh, we would say in Western lang in English language, an, e an eon, and so that uh, rather than uh, the universe dying, there's a sense of uh, this expanding, contracting, expanding, contracting. Also, you've got different dimensions. You've got the uh, dimensions of being which are completely non-physical, the deva realms and the the Brahma realms. Uh, which, uh, where time runs in completely different orders. So the, the Buddhist universe is, is much more uh, multidimensional and very different from the sort of Western scientific model of the universe. Uh, although some Western scientists do talk about a, a big bang and then a, and a, and a reaching a limit and then coming to a shrinking and a, a big bounce when another universe comes into being. So those kind of models do ex exist within the, the Western form as well. But um, I think the, um, with, with respect to this question, that um, the uh, one of the, the things about the the, the universe uh, is that when the, some when the question is asked, well, how did it all begin? Then that's uh, one of the things that the Buddha says is imponderable. The achinteya is uh, the uh, an ultimate beginning of things. He said the, the mind can't conceive. What what uh, what what that is, or that it's not that we haven't got enough information, or we, we need a better scientific model. It says, no, it's it's beyond the realm of thought. So there's there's four achinteya, four imponderables. One is the ultimate beginning of things. Two is the range of the mind of of a Buddha. Yeah, three is um, 
uh, the, all of the levels of uh, mental concentration, all the levels of jhana. And the fourth is all of the workings of karma, karma and vipaka, action and its result. So the Buddha said these, these four are achinteya, imponderable. So the mind doesn't have enough dimensions to conceive the reality. Again, going back to Vachagota and uh, the Buddha's response to him, you know, the way the question is put presumes a reality that, that doesn't exist. Uh, and so that um, uh, the, um, I think it, the, uh, if we, uh, if we think about the, the, the teaching that the Buddha gave uh, to Vachagota about uh, the nature of the enlightened being, that uh, if, you, if you understand that what we think of as a person or like a person realizing Nibbana, that's an individual located in space passing through time. Um, and, uh, and the Buddha is saying to Vachagota, all of those are presumptions that don't really apply. If you let go of identity, if you let go of location, if you let go of time, what are we? Where, where are we? Well, where doesn't apply? What doesn't apply? Who doesn't apply? So the, the mind has no way of, of perceiving that or figuring that. So uh, I don't know if these words are helpful, but it's rather like, like I can't see radio waves. I can't see the waves that this, um, uh, this webcast is casting around the world, whereby this is being watched by people all over the planet. I can't see those waves. Uh, right now, uh, 60 billion neutrinos are passing through every square centimeter of my body and your body and everybody's body. A neutrino has no mass. As far as I understand, they don't even slow down when they pass through the whole planet. But there's 60 billion passing through your, every square centimeter of your skin, my skin, everybody's skin, right now. I can't see the neutrinos. What does a neutrino taste like? What's its sound? Well, sound doesn't apply, taste doesn't apply, color doesn't apply. They have no, they're there, according to the scientists. But you can't see them, you can't taste them, you can't smell them, you can touch them, but there's ways you can measure them and even say that there's 60 billion of them passing through every square centimeter every second. So um, that uh, there's a lot of things in life that are inconceivable, <laughs> I can't be perceived. And so I feel that in respect to this question, um, that to to use the Buddha's teaching to let go consciously of trying to uh, conceive of um, nirvana or what happens to an enlightened being uh, when the universe ceases to exist. Uh, it's like, well, uh, if there's no time, there's no place, there's uh, no identity, or those don't apply, the whole thing is is highly inconceivable, which um, to the ego is a bit threatening. It's like, ah, but I want to know. There's got to be something. <laughs> so it's threatening to the ego. But if we sort of look, if we open the curtains of the ego and look within to the heart, the heart goes, of course, oh, oh right. And there's a an intuitive sense of of how those things uh, how those things are. And because that, that timeless, unlocated, selfless dimension is not kind of somewhere else in some super dimension, but it's the very fabric of our own being. Okay. Dear Ajahn Amaro, thank you for your online talks and also for the meditation sessions on Saturday, which is very useful for us who live far away and unable to attend the temple regularly. My question is, when you perform breathing meditation, Anapanasati, do you have to concentrate on your nostrils? 
Most of the times when I meditate, I find it difficult to feel the air of the nostrils, but find it easier, uh, the air flowing above the nostrils in the air passages, or to feel inflation and deflation in my lungs. As a medical doctor, I am aware of the anatomy of the respiratory system. Is my meditation technique wrong if I think of the passage of the air particles entering from the nose towards the lungs and back to the nose and out of the body? Also, may you be kind enough to discuss Sampajanya. It's mentioned as clear comprehension, but I do not understand this in the context of awareness. Well, the second one, I think I did already. <laughs> and um, uh, in terms of the concentration, I think it's, uh, it's important to, to um, understand that we focus on the breath simply as a convenient reference point. So I, I, I understand that some meditation teachers are extremely specific. They say, you've got to focus on this particular spot and this field of sensations and nothing else. But uh, my experience is that, again, if you make it too tight, it becomes a bit impractical. And that might work for a few people, but for a lot of people, it doesn't. So I would, when I give instruction on this, I generally say, wherever you feel the breath most easily, whether it's in your nose, on your lip, in your chest, in your abdomen, or wherever you feel that rhythm, focus your attention there. That's the, the spot to aim for, because that's where it's most easily discernible. Because the point is simply a pattern of sensations that the, the mind can attend to, to be a flag for attention in the present moment. That's what it's for. It's like a flag on a golf course tells you where the hole is. It's just, okay, aim in that direction. That, that's what the focusing on the breath really is for. It's just like a, a flag to, to bring our attention to the present reality. So whatever you're most comfortable with and whatever serves to bring the attention to the present, that's uh, what I would aim for. So I realized um, there, there was a few more questions that came in, but it's already uh, 4.45, so I'd like to take one or two from the, the room, if there are, are any. Unless everyone's listened out. Any questions here? Yeah, just, maybe, maybe you've already uh, explained it, but I just was wondering about the relationship between the, uh, the knowing and the knowing and the unconditional. There was a question. I didn't explain it. <laughs> well, it was my question. Oh, that was your question. Uh -huh. <laughs> knowing and the knowing. Is it the same as the unconditioned? Is it the path to the unconditioned? Or is there a more helpful way to express the, the relationship than either of these? Um, but again, listening to Lumpur Sumato's, um, they, they were weekly broadcasts. Um, he was very uh, sort of freewheeling in his way of talking about it and saying you know, that, the, that the knowing is the unconditioned. Um, I tend to be a little uh, more sort of <laughs> fixed. And so that uh, my, my, my mind tends to work in a bit more sort of list-making ways than, than Lumpur Tomatoes does sometimes. So I would say that the in terms of the triple gem, I think it's a helpful way to reflect upon it. So the Dhamma is the substance or the fabric of reality, the unconditioned. And then the primary function of that substance, with solidly written quote marks, substance, <laughs> is is awareness. So the Buddha arises from the Dhamma. The 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 primary function of the uh, of the of the Dhamma or the that uh, that activity is knowing. 
So the Buddha arises from the Dhamma. And when the Buddha sees the Dhamma, what arises is the Sangha. So when the awake mind sees the, the way things are, then what arises is skillful conduct. So when I was talking about Vijaya and Charana earlier, it's also very closely related to that. So that the, the you can say the Dhamma is the substance, the Buddha is the function, and the Sangha is the manifestation. You won't find that spelled out in those same words in the Pali Canon, but I've, over the years I've, I've found that's the most helpful way to, to describe that. So the knowing is that Buddha quality. Just as the, the word Buddha means, it means knowing or awareness, I think, uh, or, or wakefulness. I think it's actually even in Russian, I think I heard it's the word for an alarm clock. That's because we have a Russian speaker here. So, so the word for an alarm clock is, uh, what's the word in Russian? Buddhi. Buddhi is an alarm clock. Very appropriate. So again, there's a sort of relationship between the, the Sanskrit languages and the European. So I don't know if that, that uh, is a helpful response, but uh, it's interesting. I really love listening to Lumpur Sumedho's words because, and, and the way that the ease with which he, he speaks of that, because again, it's coming directly from his own experience. It's not coming from a textbook or uh, any kind of, uh, I mean, it's informed by his, what he's learned and he's listened from his own teachers and what he's read, but it's really coming from his own heart. It's his heart speaking and saying, so when he says uh, that, that, uh, that consciousness is the unconditioned, and that's often the way he expresses it, then you know, the, the, the pedantic mind can say, but consciousness is not the unconditioned. <laughs> uh, uh, so yeah, you can be pedantic about it, but also I feel it's important to respect that the, the directness and the sincerity, the place where his voice is coming from. It's, it is, in those moments, it really is a Dhamma Desana. It's a, Desana means a demonstration so we use the word for Dhamma Desana as a, a Dhamma talk, but really, or like Darshan in, in Sanskrit, or Hindi, Darshan is, uh, it's a demonstration of Dhamma. And so that uh, when we when we say um, Buddhang Dham, Buddha, uh, we, we give the, uh, the Namotasa and Buddhang Dhammang uh, Sankhang Namasami, you know, I pay respect to the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha. What you're aiming to do is for the person to get out of the way and let the Dhamma speak. That's the aim. Often the person gets back in the seat very quickly. <laughs> But uh, that's the, the 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 structure of it is it's a dhamma talk. It's like it's the, the dhamma speaking, or like Lumpur Chara saying, "I don't have an age, and I don't you, you, I don't live anywhere. You can, there's nowhere you can find me." While he's sitting there in front of the person asking him the question, you can't find me anywhere. And he means it. He's speaking the absolute truth. You, you, uh, if you're looking for for me, uh, and that me in that moment is that awake, aware quality. And that, that's where that voice is coming from. Again, you can take various sort of pedantic positions around that, but I feel that that's it's appropriate and beautiful and liberating to to give uh, credibility to have uh, faith where that where that voice is coming from, and to uh, to recognize in that moment that's that's a speaking the absolute truth or when the buddha is asked are you a human being he said you know that which you, by which you could call me a human being has been cut off and let go of and is no longer a subject of future arising 
So thank you for your good attention, and I think I'll, I'll leave it there for today. And uh, so next week, the the theme is dreaming ourselves into existence. Yes, dreaming ourselves into existence. So that's be the uh, the theme for for next week. It'll uh, relate to uh, some similar areas, but also in particular uh, talking about the um, teachings on anatta and uh, the the way that we create atas selves uh, along the way and what what comes with that. So go well. <laughs> <laughs>